Want to see the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. Hello, 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 and welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca, your host, and I am thrilled to be here. And I'm psyched that you've tuned in. So a little housekeeping before we get started. If you want to reach me, you can email me at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. There's no H in Francesca. And if you miss part of the show, you can hop on over to my iTunes page where you can also listen to hundreds of other episodes of Talk with Francesca. And if you want to know what else is going on, including upcoming shows, giveaways, etc., visit my website, talkwithfrancesca.com. This show is sponsored by Terramia Restaurante in the North End. When you will only accept the absolute best in Italian food, great service, and an intimate setting, Terramia is your go-to spot. I know because it also happens to be my favorite Italian restaurant. And guess what? There's parking. Yep, there's parking in the North End if you can believe it. And don't forget to tell them that I sent you. All right, I am giving away a free day of doggy daycare at the Dog Den in Pembroke. The 10th emailer to email me at info at talkwithfrancesca.com takes it away. Put in the subject line, the dog den. I am looking for the 10th emailer. All right, then, here we go. We've got a very serious topic today. What we don't know about domestic violence could kill us. Too often, too many consider domestic violence something that only happens to women who, well, make bad choices or it happens to the ill-fated. But that's not true. It's rampant. Since 2017, get this, four women a day are killed by their partners in America. That is crazy. Suzanne Debuse was was once a victim of domestic violence. Since 1998, she's been the CEO of the Jeannie Greiger, Kreiger, excuse me, Crisis Center. It is a domestic violence crisis center in Newburyport. She's created a program designed to identify women who in are in high-risk situations and provide them with resources to build new lives. And she's here with us now. So great to have you back, Suzanne. Thank you. It's good to be here. So is it accurate that the first 90 days after a victim leaves her partner that it's the most dangerous time for them? Yeah, that's what research shows. You know, a lot of what we now know about women who are potential victims of either a severe physical assault or a homicide comes from Dr. Jacqueline Campbell at uh, Johns Hopkins University, and she identified 20 of the lethality factors that are in place right before a woman is killed and um, found that her research shows that the first 90 days of separation are when someone, when a woman is in most in danger of being harmed. And why would that be? Well, you know, the the pattern of domestic violence truly is, um, it's one that's not based on anger, it's not based on love, it's based on power and control. And so when an abusive partner, and who could be a male or a female, but an abusive partner senses that they're losing control, 
then typically the power ramps up. And so that can be in a lot of different, that can show up in a lot of different ways. It can be name calling. It could be, you know, containing someone's movement so that the woman no longer has a car to use or isn't allowed to leave the house. And then in those rarest of, of occasions, but all too frequently, it will result in physical abuse or, or ultimately murder. And so I think that when a woman leaves, and that is the ultimate kind of, I think, for the abuser, sees that as losing control. And so they go to great uh, pains to, to grasp at the, the control that they still have. So are these men who have abandonment issues or attachment issues? I don't know a lot. I mean, I'm... Uh, I don't know about the psychology behind a batterer. I would tell you that 90% of men who are abusive, you would never know. Uh, you can work with them. They might deliver your mail. They might, you know, be your boss. They might be your brother. People just don't know, and it's not um, necessarily that a man is diagnosed any particular way. I tend to believe, and and I'm interested in this. I believe that batterers aren't born. I think they're created. I think they're created by um, either some childhood wound and maybe they saw domestic violence, maybe they experienced it, maybe they were abused as a child, but they grow up um, feeling that that they can demand, that they're entitled to love, that they can command or demand a woman's attention, and that there's swift punishment when it's not uh, when it's not received in the way that they want it want to feel it. Is it an abandonment issue? Probably for some people it's an abandonment issue. For other people it's probably you know an issue of narcissism. Right. Uh, there's probably lots of different ways to look at people who use abuse to control their partners. So what are risk factors in abusive relationships? Well, there's a whole bunch of them, and and some of them are criminal, and some of them are not criminal. But uh, some of the most egregious are, you know, has he ever threatened to kill you? Does he own a gun? Does he has he ever threatened to kill himself? Uh, as has he ever? I already said threatened to kill you. Does he use um, the children as as a kind of a a leveraging, a leveraging tool, you know, if you do this and I'll never let you see the children, those kinds of threats. Um, and then there are others that seem innocuous, uh, like is he unemployed or is there a stepchild in the home? And those, you know, I think most lay people would think, oh, I don't understand. There's a lot of people that have those things happening in their homes and that's not doesn't lead to an abusive situation. But it is really looking at the context of the domestic violence. It's looking at the whole picture. So typically that those can just be additional stressors. And for a a relationship where domestic violence is present, it can just make things worse. For normal functioning um, relationships, healthy relationships, those might be stressors for a relationship, but it's not going to lead to abuse. Suzanne, you, um, you've shared your story on how you met your abuser and how you saw small signs in the beginning, like him pinching you for wearing shorts he thought were too short or him jabbing his fingers hard into your chest. During that time, did you feel that this behavior was temporary or excused? 
I did, you know, and I think, so, you know, here's the, the kind of the broader story. I was young. I was very inexperienced in relationships. I was probably by today's standards old, but I think I was uh, 21, 21 when we met. And, um, but I didn't have a lot of experience in relationships, and he seemed he seemed godlike to me. I mean, he was, in my mind, he was this tall, beautiful man who, you know, decided to spend time with me, and I felt really, really lucky. And, you know, in hindsight, I realized that there was a lot of erosion of my own spirit happening. Uh, he continually would insult me, and then he would, you know, bring me up. And I felt a little <sighs> bit like, you know, he tore me down and built me up. And in those moments where he built me up, I felt he was responsible for building me up. In those periods where I was really sinking down and had just no self-esteem, I held myself responsible for those moments because that's what he told me. And I believed him. I believed that I did something wrong. And... um and I really didn't. I, I just never once considered that this was anything other than my fault. And it wasn't until I began to get some perspective and I realized how um, abusive he was and, and how scared I always was around him because I didn't know how I was going to feel. And ironically, the thing that freed me was his working and he was a commercial fisherman, and so he would go out for several weeks at a time. And it was during the, that time where he was away from the house that I began to realize, hey, I'm not so bad. I'm not a bad person. Other people like me. And I began to get a little bit more perspective and feedback from people, and then that's when my light bulbs began to, to turn on. Did it ever occur to you to get any kind of professional help? It didn't. You know, so this was the early 80s. There wasn't a lot of talk about domestic violence. Um, or therapy I even, right? Pardon me? Or therapy even. Or therapy, yeah. And, you know, and who knows what therapists would have understood about that. You know, we mm -hmm. still, there are still some therapists who think about domestic violence as a communication issue. Or he just has an anger, an anger problem. And so what are you doing to make him angry? And can you do less of that? What are you so, doing to make him angry? Yeah, so that, that still exists in some some corners of the world. Um, and, yeah, so people weren't talking about domestic violence. I never thought of myself as a victim. I thought of myself as, you know, the person that was making this happen. Um, I He also had an alcohol problem, and so I would quickly kind of attribute his behavior to alcohol and that, that this was something I could manage, that as long as I could manage his alcohol intake, everything was fine. But that wasn't true. He mm. was abusive whether he was drunk or he was sober. It was all the time. But it was definitely worse when he was drunk. So I could just point to those times. If I could just get that part to improve, right. I could live with the rest. And that's that's the kind of trade-off that I was thinking about back then was it may not be perfect, but at least he's not hitting me when he's sober. Because you were in love with him. Yes, I was in love with the idea of him. I was mm -hmm. in love with the first year with him, and I was just trying to figure out what do I need to do to get back to that. That's what I want in my life. Uh -huh. And so, but then all of a sudden you realize, well, holy crap, that first year was five years ago, uh, and yeah. it's only gotten worse. Uh -huh. 
Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with uh, Suzanne Debuse. She was once a victim of domestic violence, and she is uh, now the CEO of the Jeannie Krieger Crisis Center. It's a domestic violence center in Newburyport. What, Suzanne, what prevents abused women um, from asking for asking for help? There's so many things. Um, the first thing, so the the kind of pattern or the cycle that I went through in my own life isn't um, unusual for a lot of women who find themselves in abusive relationships. That that initially, as they began to understand the kind of the realities of the relationship. What's been happening for the first part is probably just trying to get back to the days when everything felt really good. And then over time you realize, okay, that's not going to happen. But then there are also the real-life considerations. You know, you share children. So what happens? How am I going to, um, you know, isn't it better for us to stay together because we want our child to have a whole family? And then you begin to let go of that dream. And then you start feeling like, okay, so I haven't actually had a job in four years, and I don't know how I can earn enough money to live independently of him. Um, my friends and family are so tired of hearing, you know, my next plan to either make this marriage work or my plan to break free of the relationship, that those uh, relationships tend to phrase over time. But there's a lot of fear, and I think what happens, like with all things, when, when we are stressed and overwhelmed, by the realities of life, and then you compound that by adding abuse on top of that, and you're left alone in the middle of the night to wonder, how am I going to put my life together and move on? What we tend to see first are all the obstacles, and so people tend to shut down before they reach out for help. And, um, you know, I remember there was this really wonderful woman who came to the center years ago, but it was at the end of five years she would call the hotline and she would just gather some information. She would have very specific questions about child visitation or child support or, you know, how do I feed my family and do you guys have help for rent, you know, to rent an apartment, that kind of thing. And she gathered all these informations like a squirrel gathering acorns. And then finally when she had figured out, okay, yes, there's help, Five years later, she reached out to us oh, and said, okay, I'm ready to leave. Wow. And um, so it's, it's that. It's a process. It's really trying to figure out what their resources are, what they don't have, and then hopefully they tell their story to somebody who can say, you know what, there's an organization that can help you. Right. And um, that's, that tends to be pretty, pretty uh, an example of, of the way many, many women find us. Um, we do need to take a short break. When we come back, you left the relationship after three years, and I'd love to, you to tell our listeners if there was one significant event that pushed you to the point or was it built up over time. Listeners, stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. This is Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. We'll talk more in just a bit on 95.9 WATD. 
Do you remember the last time your vehicle was in that pristine condition? Angel's Touch offers full-service detailing and bodywork. Family-owned and operated with several packages to choose from, you can count on your car to be immaculate from bumper to bumper, undercarriage to sunroof. Call Angel's Touch today at 508-759-1111. Collision, detailing, and full restoration, because you can always trust an Angel's Touch. Visit them at capepodautobodyanddetailing.com. So what are you waiting for? Ladies, it's time to enjoy a new you. Stop hiding. Experience a tradition of quality results and a standard of excellence and service at Kima Cosmetic Surgery Anti-Aging Center in Norwell. The best kept secret south of Boston, whether you're looking to seek enhancement, reconstruction, or skin care, Kima is the only place to go. Having been in business for 11 years, their clients include A-listers. Kima is the first clinic in Massachusetts to use Limitless MD, human umbilical cord stem cells. These are the first human umbilical cord stem cells created for cosmetic procedures used in combination with some of the most advanced technologies. I've been to Kima myself and wouldn't go anywhere else because I expect exceptional results. So contact Kima today to schedule your consultation at 781-871-4200 or visit them at KimaAntiAging.com and discover the internal and external solution you've been looking for. Now, what are you waiting for? Looking for a unique experience to dining? Rio Brazilian Steakhouse brings an authentic Brazilian flavor with a great atmosphere to the restaurant scene in Plymouth. The interior is warm and welcoming, and the buffet style offers a relaxed atmosphere while offering fine dining with the traditional rodizio style from Rio, the heart of Brazil. Come dine and watch your dishes being prepared and cooked over the grill. Plymouth's best-kept secret, Rio Brazilian Steakhouse offers a full buffet daily, along with wine and beer. Rio Brazilian Steakhouse is located at 318 Court Street in Plymouth and is open seven days a week. For an unforgettable experience from start to finish, visit them at riosteakhouserestaurant.com. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. The talk continues on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back. And I am speaking with Suzanne DeBuse. She was once a victim of domestic violence. And since 1998, she's been the CEO of the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center. I know I've been messing that up, the name of that up a bit. I'm sorry about that, Suzanne. Um, (laughs) It is in Newburyport. Welcome back. Thank you. So I just want to ask you one more question about your relationship, and then I'd like to uh, move on to talk about your center. So before the break, I had um, asked you, you had left your relationship after three years. Was there one significant event or circumstance that pushed you to the point, or was it, or did it build? Well, we obviously know it builds up over time, but was there a breaking point? There were a couple. There was one that was very negative, and then there was one that was a positive impact on my life. I was working at a bank, and I remember my husband came in. It was payday. And my husband came in, and he was only wearing a pair of shorts. He had no shirt or shoes on. And it was around lunchtime, and I think he'd actually been drinking. And I was just mortified. I was just so embarrassed. And he came in basically to get my paycheck. And I went home that day 
and I didn't know how I was going to talk to him about his behavior and how embarrassing that was to me, and only to go home and found that not only had he taken my paycheck, but he had sold a bunch of our stuff and then bought a one-way plane ticket to California. We were living in Florida at the time. Um, And with no note, no anything, and he called me from the airport that night to say that, you know, he just needed to go out fishing in the West Coast and uh, he would be back. And I remember hanging up thinking, oh, no, you won't. But at the same time, um, I didn't have any plan. I didn't know how I was going to leave him. But at the same time, I'd also become really good friends with a woman that I was working with at the bank. And she she came up to me a couple days after that, and she had noticed how much I was shaking when my husband came into the bank. And she said, you know, I know a little bit about what it feels like to shake. And so is there anything you want to talk about? And it was the first time anyone had asked me that question. And we went out to lunch, and I just told her the whole ugly truth. And she it was really the power of being able to tell your story to someone who wasn't sitting there and judging you, who totally understood, who just wanted to be of service in some way. And she just helped me. You know, that was, a, that was the beginning of my healing. And the next part she did was really help me figure out how to make the next moves. And over the next six months, um, that's what I started to do. Wow. An angel was sent to you. Yes, yes. And then you later became an outreach worker for uh, the, the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center. Uh, did, did working there help you with your own healing? It did. You know, the funny, the the embarrassing, uh, ironic part of my story is that while all that happened in my 20s, that in my, my mid-30s, I came to work at the crisis center as an outreach worker. I was going to be working with teens to talk to them about teen dating violence. And part of us starting, you know, our employment was you had to go through this uh, mandatory training. And so the first night was fine. It was sort of an orientation to the organization and to the philosophy and and the history. And then the second night was about kind of domestic violence 101. And I had physical symptoms that night driving home. I was really shaky. My hands were shaky. I had a horrendous headache. I I started to lose sleep. And then the next time we met, it was about sexual assault. I had the same things. It wasn't until I began to work in this organization that I even put a name to what I had experienced as a young woman, that I had never once thought, I'm a victim of domestic violence. Um, What I thought at the end, the way I thought about our relationship was that I escaped a very toxic relationship. I chalked it almost all up to alcohol, even in those final days of our relationship. And it really wasn't until I began to study domestic violence did I understand what I was truly looking at. And how did it change your life? It changed my life, um, I think, you know, for the good. I love what we do at the center. one of the things that when I became the executive director here, I, you know, really wanted to make sure, I remembered 
a moment in my early 20s about hearing about a domestic violence shelter that was opening up for battered women. And I remember in that moment thinking, oh, my God, that's so great because I'm sure there's someone that needs that. Never once thinking, oh, I'm that person that needs that. And so I was really sort of intrigued by how did I, someone who was smart and self-aware and all of that, or at least I thought so, um, how, what would have, what could I, what could that woman have done to make me understand that I was someone that could use those services and that this was a warm and safe and an inviting place to come? And so in that way, it's really changed the way that I approach the work because uh, that's what I've wanted to create is a home for uh, survivors and victims who need a good, warm, compassionate ear and, and, you know, seasoned advocates and experts who can help them in their journey leaving that relationship. In your outreach, you focus on women from different backgrounds that include women of color, financially impaired, um, immigrants. Are the statistics significantly different from women who are considered privileged? Yeah. um, Well, yeah. I mean, so the statistic has always been kind of one in four women will experience domestic violence at some point in their lives. We know that homicide uh, statistics are... um, that there are three women killed a day. That changed in 2014 when uh, they started to study the the impact of firearms and saw that over the last uh, four years it has steadily increased so that now the rate is actually four women a day. And we know that domestic violence homicide happens more in uh, communities of color than it does in white communities. So, um, so, there, so there's a whole lot to work with there, and the other thing is that um, that when you know, I think the the criticism about the domestic violence movement is that it was really kind of created by white women, and and we were really good at trying to figure out what what might be useful for white women, but we didn't understand how the other kinds of uh, oppression, like institutionalized racism, could uh, affect women of color even more so, and so that maybe a system that was seen as warm and welcoming to white women may not feel the same for women of color, like courtrooms and and law enforcement. So, you know, we've had to work extra hard to make sure that we are working uh, with that understanding and looking at the work through that lens. So there's no denying, obviously, that social media is everywhere. Uh, Suzanne, um, Give us your opinion on the impact it has on um, domestic violence. Well, I think it's good and it's bad. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. I think social social media has has its beauty. So I think the beautiful part about social media is you're able to communicate to a wider audience and educate about an issue or spread awareness about an organization or support that's available for survivors. Um, and then you can also help educate the community about you know the in the case of domestic violence, it's not just about that one relationship. It's also about poverty and homelessness and daycare. And there's lots of ways that we kind of uh, hold that conversation. So that's a a great thing. The tough thing is when uh, there's, you know, like news 
I think like, well, you know, we say fake news, right? So when someone uh, maybe is is critical or, or lumping, I don't know, I'm trying to think. All right, no, I'm going to talk about teens. So mm-hmm. teens with social media. So they they are taught how to be boys and girls, men and women, uh, largely through social media and technology these days. You know, they're watching shows, they're listening to music, they're sharing uh, what is probably might be true news, it might not be true news. And so, you know, I listen frequently to my daughters and their social group, and everything that they talk about comes off of BuzzFeed or, you know, some some other news source that may or may not be accurate. So I think a lot of times it gives uh, particularly young people the sense that um, that they that this is all fine, that this behavior is fine, that bullying is fine, that, uh, you know, girls are created to be treated abusively. Uh, We do a lot of work with teens, and social media is a huge piece that we talk about. The other thing about social media is it teaches us uh, from a very young age, so again, I'm thinking about this as middle school and high schoolers, it teaches us what it means to be a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. And so... Oftentimes, that can be hypersexualized girls, uh, very, very hypermasculine boys. And so, what do girls and boys make of themselves when that's not what they look like? That's not who they are. That's not how they want to be. And you know, so I worry that those kinds of very stark examples of masculinity and femininity um, discourage. People that just, you know, young people that just want to be whole humans. Right. Well, I would love for us to chat longer, but Susan, obviously, um, there's so much more to talk about, but we are out of time, and I just wanted to thank you for being a guest on Talk with Francesca today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and, uh, you know, happy June. Okay. You take care. Thank you. All right, why you should continue to listen to Talk with Francesca, because if only well-educated and coming from a good family were enough to defang all life's demons. Leslie Morgan Steiner is the author of Crazy Love. It's a memoir about her marriage to a man who routinely abused and threatened her. She describes the harrowing details that unfolded unexpectedly from the moment she met a warm, loving, infatuated man on the subway to the moment he first laid a hand on her when he grabbed her neck just days before her wedding. Leslie was in crazy love, that is, madly in love with a man who routinely abused her and threatened her life. Why Leslie, an actual domestic abuse victim, isn't didn't leave. Up next. I'm Francesca Luca, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Hey, long time no see. You look amazing. Thanks. I just came from my hair appointment with Thomas Negrelli at Rebel Hair Studio. Thomas Negrelli? 
Yeah, Thomas Negrelli. He specializes in cuts, color, blowouts, braids, and even makeup. I have been thinking about changing up my look for the spring. Then call him at 774-404-1872. Did you say that number again? 774-404-1872. Thanks, I'm calling him now. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terra Mia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutorial with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terra Mia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit terramiarestaurante.com. Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca. On 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back. And we're going to talk about a disturbing question that has an equally disturbing answer. The one question everyone asks about a domestic violence victim. Why does she stay? Leslie Morgensteiner doesn't look the part. Not at all. She has an MBA and an undergraduate degree from an Ivy League school. She's got 15 years of marketing experience at Fortune 500 companies, and she's the New York Times bestselling author of, guess what, Crazy Love. That's what we're talking about today. She's a regular guest on the big shows, Today Show, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, and Anderson Cooper. She's also been pro profiled in all the big publications, too, and she's done a TED Talk. And she's joining us here today. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. All right. So you say it's a psychological trap, domestic violence. I get that. But once you're on to the grave danger of it, then why continue to stay? I mean, especially someone like yourself who had all the resources available to you, good job, good family, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that what people don't understand looking from the outside is the complexity of domestic violence and the trap that a victim is in. And victims can be men, women, children. It really can happen to anybody. And it can be an emotional um, abuse situation or physical violence. But the reason that you stay is quite often you love the person who's hurting you. Um, you long for the fairy tale beginning when everything was magical. You feel sorry for them, and you think you can help them, and you think it's going to get better. And I'm here to say that it never gets better. The abuse always gets worse over time. And so, in fact, although it goes against a lot of the forces that are causing you to stay, right now is always the best time to leave. So when and why did you feel it was the right time to finally speak out about your experience with this abuse? Well, about five years after I ended my um, abusive marriage, I had remarried. I had had um, two children with my second husband, and I, I was just feeling really sort of safe enough to write Crazy Love and to begin talking about it. Um, it took that long for my denial to break down and for me to feel safe and secure. 
And I felt like I had an obligation to speak out because I could, um, because I was a writer um, and I had that ability to articulate what had happened to me. Um, and also because I didn't have children with my first husband, I felt more free than most victims do. And I felt like I had an obligation to speak out, an obligation to myself and to other victims. You uh, I have done a TED Talk, which I love TED Talks. I find so many of my guests from them. And But um, I'm curious about uh, how it was people responded to that and to Crazy Love as well. Well, the response to Crazy Love from the very beginning was very positive. It was a New York Times bestseller that the week that it was published. But before that, we had a hard time even getting it published because there were a lot of big New York publishing houses who thought that nobody would buy it, that people would be too ashamed to read it. It was, it was really incredible. Now, this was 10 years ago, and things have changed a lot in 10 years, but a decade is not that long. And I, I was really kind of shocked at the time that there were so many retro ideas about domestic violence and really thrilled that the general public responded with enthusiasm. And the response to the TED Talk has been great, too. It's been viewed by over 5 million people. Um, in over, um, It's been translated into 30 different languages, and I think it's available in 50 different countries. So it's, it just shows how pervasive domestic violence is and how hungry people are for information about what it was really like to be a victim and how you get out. So how, you know, at the beginning of the show, I introduced you and, and all your credentials. So how did you not notice what was going well, on? Nothing, I mean, one of the I, things I that you, I... I wish that education or IQ points were sort of some kind of magic shield against abuse, but they're not. Um, there are lots of strong, smart, independent women and men who become abuse victims. Um, because it just doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's not a self-esteem problem or an intelligence or socioeconomic problem. This happens to everybody in every community, every religion, every education level, every single school and neighborhood in, on, the, on the planet, really. Um, and it was just that my abuser was really charming. He was smart and funny, and he adored me, and I fell for him. And you know, I mean, everybody knows this, that when you fall in love, one of the wonderful things about it is that you open your heart and really your soul to another person. And unfortunately, the person that I did that to took advantage of it. So in some ways, it was as simple as falling in love with the wrong person. And in some ways, just being a um, in the wrong place at the wrong time. My abuser could tell that I was a nice person and that I had a big and generous heart. And he quite carefully took advantage of that. But, okay, so he choked you during sex. Did you ever ask yes. him why? No, it was such a strange thing that happened. It was a complete one-off, and it, it only happened once, and it happened early in our relationship when I didn't know him as well, and things were intensely passionate and erotic. And I was young. I was 22, and I, you know, like I listened to a lot of Dr. Ruth, and I worked at a woman's magazine, and I thought, well, maybe some people are into this. And I wasn't into it. It really frightened me. And I just, I didn't know what to do or say. And so I didn't say anything. And there were many red flags like that, that I didn't do or say anything because I was so ill-equipped to know that it was a red flag. Tell us some and others. that's one of the reasons I speak out now, is that I want people to understand that these are red flags, something like that. Any kind of choking or strangulation is a very serious red flag. Give us some other red flags. Oh, he started um, to to kind of make suggestions about my clothing and my makeup. 
that my shorts, my skirts were too short, that I, that he told me that I looked really beautiful without makeup, so I shouldn't wear any. He wrapped up these rules in a very nice package, like that it was because he loved me, but that is really not love. And I, now I see it as attempts to control me. Um, he also was willing to make a commitment very, very early in the relationship, and that's another red flag. I think that the most subtle red flag, though, is that he wanted me to feel sorry for him. He had been terribly abused as a child, and he used that almost as a trump card to get me to lower my standards for him and to accept the fact that he had an anger problem that he couldn't control. What, what in your opinion, makes a, a woman vulnerable to the sort of manipulation? You know, I have met thousands of abuse victims over the years, survivors, and everybody looks different, all ages, all, you know, just all of the outer details are different. But what I have noticed about each victim is that he or she is one of those people that has a very big heart Mm -hmm. and is willing to forgive somebody again and again and again. And the terrible thing about this is that that's, that's one of the most wonderful ways to be. And it's how I raise my kids to be and how I want to be. Um, but what we need to realize, especially women need to realize this, is that that kind of generosity of spirit sometimes can make you really vulnerable to manipulation and to abuse. And there's nothing wrong with it, but we have to keep an eye on it and make sure that we're as good to ourselves as we are to everybody else. I'm curious how this affected your life. I mean, you divorced him and then you remarried and you married a man that you had two children with and you were married for how long, 20 years? Yes. And yeah. then you got And I actually had th- I had three children with him. Okay. With the second husband. I have three kids. And you got divorced from him when? Um, about five years ago. Oh, okay. Very amicably and in a very different sort of scenario. Sort of like your run of the mill yeah. um, marriage versus any kind of abuse. Expiration date. Right. Uh, the, yeah. The, the expi- then the marital expiration date. <laughs> um, but that's my own thing, I, I guess. But what? Um, so, do you feel that there was any part of that relationship, uh, or the past relationship that you brought into the, your second marriage, um, that was not healthy, and that for that you know that that ended for any of that? No. And in fact, I mean, this is a strange thing to say, but it's really true. In lots of ways, I'm really grateful for my abusive first marriage because because he didn't kill me, because he didn't cause any lasting damage, and I learned so much from it. Um, you know, I think that sometimes these lessons in life, particularly in romance, are very hard to learn, and mm. for whatever reason, that's the lesson that I had to learn, and I had to learn it the hard way, that you have to put yourself first and that no one has the right to hurt you under any circumstances. Mm. And... And also, I, you know, I, I don't think I would do anything differently because I felt like I really loved him, and I give myself some props for loving with that kind of intensity and abandonment, and then also learning the lesson and realizing I had to leave when I did. Right. How likely is it for a victim to be in another abusive relationship? I don't know what the statistics are on that. Um, I talked to a small number of people who have repeat abusive relationships, but the vast majority of the, the women who I have worked with and the men, um, they never wanted to repeat it again. It was such a horrific experience and so scarring to them that they didn't want to put themselves in harm's way. And I think that this goes against stereotypes, too. I think we have a stereotype that somehow victims enjoy it or we have such low self-esteem that we're set up for it again, and that's not at all the case. 
most victims do not repeat the mistake. Um, and they go on to have very happy and fulfilled lives and good relationships. Okay, fair in some ways, the cautionary tale can be very useful if you make the best of it. We're talking today about women who are assaulted by the men they love, and I'm speaking with Leslie Morgan Steiner about her secret life of violence and her struggle to free herself from that cycle. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Crazy Love. More to come when we come back. More talk with Francesca coming right up on 95.9 WATD. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat, no matter what the season. Nominated for Best of the North Shore from North Shore Magazine for Best Alfresco Dining, Best Kid-Friendly Restaurant, Best Lobster Dinner, and Best Water View. Why would you go anywhere else? Whether you choose their dining room, a frosty pint at their bar, or a sun-drenched deck on the Hunt Beach, they guarantee you great atmosphere with super food and service. Their menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out their drink menu for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with their state-of-the-art tap wines. They feature full-service lottery and kino. Tides is the place to watch any big game. They have over 20 HD TVs. At Tides, they specialize in casual dining with food that's just delicious, not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Your pets are family. Take your dog to the Dog's Den in Pembroke. Your furry friend will go from smelling crummy to yummy because Leah at the Dog's Den really cares. Whatever your pet's needs are, from dematting to extra scissoring, the Dog's Den in Pembroke has your furry friends covered. So call the Dog's Den today at 781-826-7008 or visit thedogsdengrooming.com. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723. Or visit us at AnticoFornoBoston.com. I'm Francesca Luca, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back, and we are talking about women who are assaulted by the men they love, and I'm speaking with Leslie Morgan Steiner about her life of violence and her struggle to free herself from that cycle. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Crazy Love. Welcome back, Leslie. Thank you. Leslie, if you had a chance to say one thing to every woman in America about abusive relationships such as yours, what would you say to them? Find somebody that you trust and tell them your secrets. I kept the secret about what was happening to me for way too long, and my recovery began the first time I broke the silence. Abuse thrives only in silence, any kind of an abuse. So by speaking about it, you're taking a very brave and powerful step, and that's what I would tell anybody to do. 
easier said than done because there's yeah. a lot of shame that goes with that. I was talking to uh, Suzanne Debuse. She is the CEO of the Jeannie um, Geiger uh, Center in Newburyport, Mass. It's a domestic violence center. And the same thing, yeah. you know, um, that it's it's the, it's the isolation. It's the embarrassment. You think it's it, he's so wonderful when he's wonderful and when he builds you up. Life is great. When he puts you down, it's your fault. So, you know, when you start talking about it, you're talking, it's an embarrassment, right? Well, I have to tell you, I wasn't embarrassed about it. It was more complicated than that. Um, I knew it wasn't my fault. I knew that it was a legacy of the fact that my ex-husband had been really severely beaten as a child, and he just had learned this as a child. I knew it was his issue. But I felt like that I would be betraying him by turning him into the police or telling friends or neighbors or getting him in trouble. Mm. And I wanted to help him. You know, I, I didn't think I was a battered wife. I thought I was a, a strong, smart, independent woman in love with a troubled man who I wanted to help. Mm. So it's more complicated than the, than the idea that you might be embarrassed or ashamed. Some women are, some victims are, but in many cases, it's much more layered than that. And often you're financially dependent upon the person or you have children with that person. And there's a lot of societal pressure, too, to make a marriage work, no matter what the consequences. And women take that very seriously. So you shared that be, um, that before your ex-husband had bad credit and you'd taken out over 100000 in loans. Yes. Uh, okay, so, and then you were ordered to pay him a lump sum in the di- uh, divorce settlement. Yes. What advice yes. do you have for other women who find themselves in a similar financial situation? That's That's pretty daunting. Yeah, it was it was brutal. Um, so I think it depends on the, the situation. In my case, I was about to graduate from business school, and I had a good job, and I, I knew that although it would be hard and it might take me 10 years to do so, that I could pay it off and that it was the price that I had to pay for my freedom. So in my case, it was the best money that I've ever spent. But in other cases, it might make more sense to fight, um, to fight in the courts, to fight with a lawyer. But family court... And civil court is a very dangerous place for domestic violence victims because there's so much misunderstanding about how complex the dynamics are and about how both victims and abusers present themselves. Because like when I went to family court, I presented as a, a terrified, hysterical young woman. And my ex presented as a strong, smart, grounded young man. And so if I had been a judge, I might have believed him. And it happens all the time in custody cases and in other cases. So... You have to be very, very savvy when you're leaving an abuser. And it's kind of at the time in your life where you feel the least strong and the least savvy, which is one reason that you need advocates and you need friends and you need a, a lawyer who understands abuse. You need a small army of people to successfully leave an abusive relationship. Yeah. How can someone intervene if they suspect that their friend or their colleague or family member is being abused? Well, the, the best thing to do is to be very gentle about it. And to say, you know, I've noticed that something seems wrong at home. Um, You seem different. And I'm just wondering if you're okay. I love you. I care about you. I'm always here for you. And I I just need to know that you're safe. So say something non-confrontational like that because you just got to put yourself in the victim mindset. We're so terrified that somebody is going to realize our secret and that we're going to get in trouble or our loved one or our kids are going to get in trouble um, and be out on the street or face some terrible consequences. So you have to, when you're trying to help somebody from a bystander's perspective, proceed slowly and gently 
Um, but definitely try to confront the person because that's what happened to me, and it, it frankly, it saved my life that somebody was brave enough to confront me. What mistakes do you wish that you could undo if you were to have to go back to that? Well, man, I wish I wish I had not taken out that debt in my name. That was that was pretty painful. <sighs> um, yeah. And there are times where I just really wish that I had ended the relationship before I made a commitment to him and married him because the, the legality of it was very hard to get out of. If it had just been breaking up with him, it would have been a lot simpler. Um, but I'm not a big believer in regret. I, I figure for whatever reason it was meant to be that I did that. And I, um, I really, you know, the only thing you can do when you have something awful like that happen to you is to try to turn it into a force for good. And I like to think that I've been able to do that with crazy love and my TED talk and becoming an advocate and, in my own personal life, too, it's, it's been wonderful because I've spoken to my kids about abuse from their earliest ages. I, it's an open subject with all of their friends and all of my friends. And I really hope that I've tried to shine some sunlight on a, on a subject that many people are too ashamed to talk about. Um, you have daughters, sons, both? Both. So how do you, well, actually, how do you speak to your children about abuse? How has this all affected your family? I speak to them very matter-of-factly about it. Um, from the time that they were very little, I, I told them that I was married to somebody else before Daddy and that he had hit me and you can't stay with somebody who hits you. And they totally understood that. It was age-appropriate language and terminology. And as I've gotten older, you know, they've I've gone into more detail. And I've spoken at their um, high schools and colleges about crazy love many times. And I tell you, any one of my kids, my son and my two daughters, could give a great crazy love talk. They are advocates in their own way. And I think this is how we end domestic violence, is by talking about it and raising awareness so that everybody can, can help. Um, it, it just is such a widespread problem that I promise you that every single person listening knows somebody who is being abused or was abused or is an abuser. So by investing and in learning about this subject, you're setting yourself up for to be a very powerful resource for long-term societal change to end this incredibly damaging, um, destructive societal problem that we all have. What about with the popularity of the Me Too and the Time's Up movements? How do you think that social oh. media has uh, impacted survivors? And, well, not even just social media, just in general. I think that what's so wonderful about the, the Me Too movement and so many other parts of the sexual assault and domestic violence and human trafficking movements is that it's taking the shame away from victims. The shame did keep victims as prisoners. Um, and the social media and mainstream media, their willingness to report on this subject very candidly has taken the shame away and really empowered victims. And that's just, it's an unmitigated good in our society. It's really, it's good for women, it's good for men, it's good for everybody. Have you ever um, talked to men about, because I know that you, you have a Facebook page and you've written this book, and but we talk obviously about women. What about men? I mean, men get abused too. Yep, I talk to men all the time, um, via email, via social media, and in person. Um, I try always when I speak to say that men can be victims too. And quite often men will come up to me after I speak and, and confess that they were victims, um, either as children or in their relationships, heterosexual and homosexual relationships. It's very, very common. And as difficult as it is for female victims to get help, it's even harder for men to get help because it's not taken very seriously. And trust me, it is a very serious problem, no matter what your sexuality or your sexual orientation.
do men, uh, the way men are abused, is it presented differently to them by the abuser? Or is it the same, same patterns? What I have heard, it's the same pattern of gaslighting and power and control, but there's a, an element of mockery to it that um, they, the men are told that no one will believe them because they're men and they're bigger and they're stronger. And um, there's a level of shame um, that is used to entrap men that can be very powerful because our ideals of masculinity are that you never let somebody right. you know, hurt you if you're a man. And so that is used against them. And again, it's the same dynamic that the men who are victims are men who are very gentle, who have very big hearts, and their abusers take advantage of that just as they do um, female victims. Uh, Leslie, we just have about a minute and a half left, and I would just love to ask you, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to share with our listening audience? Just that there is so much hope out there and that you're in such good company if you are a victim. You know, part of the dynamic is that when it's happening to you, you feel terribly alone. You feel like this has never happened to anybody else and that it's love, not abuse. And that's one of the, the things that's used sort of as handcuffs to keep you in it. And so what I would say to victims, if this rings a bell with you, that I'm here, that lots of other survivors are here. There are lots of advocates out there who understand what you're going through. And there are many hotlines to call. There's my website, Leslie Books. There's my email. I'm very accessible. There are a lot of people out there who can really lend a hand and help you see what's going on and help you get out and help you get out safely. You said Leslie Brooks. So is that your the Leslie name? Leslie Books. Sorry. Oh, Leslie. So my name Leslie, Leslie Brooks. And I was like, wait a minute. Did I miss? Website. Did I miss her last name? Did, had that much <laughs> changed since I spoke to you last? Well, Leslie Morgenstern, author <laughs> of Crazy Love. That. Thank you so much for being on Talk with Thank Francesca you so today. Thank you for giving the time and energy to this this subject, and you've helped a lot of people. All right, you bet. All right, it's time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, spread the word on social media. See you next week, same time, same place. Make it a great week. What if you took your time to really soak it in? Because someday you're going to wish you did. Like a September morning, like snow without a warning, like how the summer feels upon your skin.
Yeah.